0: Well, I think this is a, a tension in our particular history and culture. We, we, in one way, have always trumpeted our individualism. When Alexis Tocqueville, the Frenchman, came to the United States in the 1830s, he saw right away that this was a quality that the United States seemed to possess that France didn't have in the same measure, England didn't have in the same measure, and he thought this was one of the chief values of the United States. But he also said, I worry about this value. He actually said this. He said, I fear that 200 years from now, that's about right now, he said this individualism is going to separate Americans.
1: This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu/slash/hc. Welcome to the Hallenstein Center's online program, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney. Just this past weekend, our nation celebrated Memorial Day, a holiday that started because Americans felt the need to commemorate those who had made the ultimate sacrifice in the Civil War. Today's conversation is for you history buffs who can't read enough about the Civil War, or Abraham Lincoln, or crisis leadership, and what it takes to lead in tumultuous times. Our guide is Ronald C. White, a Hallenstein Center favorite, and a New York Times bestselling author who recently finished a book about our 16th president that will be published on May 4th, 2021. Ron is also midway through writing a book about one of the union heroes in the Battle of Gettysburg, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And apropos of our current worldwide pandemic, Ron has become a much sought after speaker and wise counselor for leaders in tumultuous times. My conversation with Ron will go, oh, 45, 50 minutes or so, followed by questions from our viewers. Feel free to begin sending your questions to us right away using your Zoom toolbar to do so.
0: It's great to have you on the show, Ron. Thank you, Gleaves. Always good to be with you and with the Hohenstein Center. I'm a fan of all that you're doing. Well, you're one of our favorites,
1: believe me. You've got quite a, quite a great fan base here in West Michigan. Well, you've been quite busy lately or just before the pandemic uh, started to close travel down, but you were speaking all over the place in New Zealand and the Library of Congress and Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Tell us what you've been talking to audiences about.
0: I've been talking, Gleaves, about the the leadership in tumultuous times. I gave four lectures in New Zealand. First time we'd ever been there. Fascinating to be in that marvelous country. Their prime minister, 39-year-old Jacinda Ardern who I think is a model of the kind of leaders we need today. And I, I started out with the problem of the rise of authoritarian leaders. Many years ago, I led a group of young people to Poland, and we thought Poland would be the great example after the fall of the Soviet Union, but it now also has an authoritarian leader, as does Hungary, as does Brazil, as does the Philippines, and on and on. And I wanted to then pose this as a contrast to the leadership of Abraham Lincoln. What might we learn from him? What do we need to know today in the midst of this pandemic? That's great. And uh, what did you find out? Well, in each crisis, there are certain abilities or gifts that a leader needs to bring forward. I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, at the moment of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, exhibited great strength. But at the beginning of the Depression, this man of privilege and wealth, uh, exhibited great uh, ability to ad- identify with people in their poverty, in, their, in, the, in all the failings that was happening in their lives. He could connect with them through his fireside chats. So part of the question is, what are the times demand of the leader, and how does that particular leader meet those times?
1: We know, Ron, We talked about this uh, back in October of 2017 when we had you and David Brooks together. The three of us were on stage talking a little bit. In fact, if viewers go to the Hallenstein Center archives, you can get that wonderful video. And we spoke of the importance of character. What are the qualities that characterize good leaders in
0: tumultuous times? Well, I really hope that we will be lifting up the values of character. The rise of strong men makes one question whether people still think these are the qualities we need. Integrity, uh, truthfulness, the ability to to learn from one's mistakes, to admit them, and then to move forward. I I think of Dwight David Eisenhower, for example. He was the commander of all the uh, forces in World War II. And yet unknown to many, many people was from the time he was a boy, he had a terrible, terrible temper. He struggled with it his whole life. So he would sit in his quarters during World War II in London, and he would write out the name of someone he was deeply angry with. He would put it on a piece of paper, and then he'd fold it and drop it in the wastebasket. So Eisenhower was aware of his own fallibility, but he knew how to deal with it. I think that's another quality of leadership. A word I like especially, if I may, is the word humility, or the 19th century would have said self-effacement. You referred to some of the things I've been privileged to do. In October, I was invited by the Library of Congress to speak to some members of Congress. 14 members and four spouses offered their RSVP and came to a breakfast meeting. And I was given a title, that wasn't my title, Leadership Lessons from Lincoln and Grant. And I tried to pose the tension between ambition and humility. If you're going to be a leader, you have to have ambition, but can you combine that with humility? When the meeting was over, a woman came forward and she said, my husband has been in Congress for more than 20 years. And I noticed tears began to well up in her eyes. And she asked me this question that I've never forgotten. She said, do you think it's possible that humility will ever return to American politics? Can humility ever return? I think if you look at the great figures starting with Lincoln, humility is a key quality of leadership.
1: Okay, so I've got a line of books. I'm, I'm talking to you from my, my office in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I've got a line of books about the presidents, and uh, George Washington's bust is right there. Yes. It, it's hard for us, I mean, the, these larger-than-life people, it's hard for us to think of them as humble individuals, and yet they know their limits is is knowing one's limits the key to humility knowing that that there are forces
0: moral forces greater than you well it's interesting that you would mention George Washington i do my work here at the Huntington library in san marino california and some years ago the huntington put on a marvelous exhibit on george washington And the New York Review of Books assigned someone to write a review of the exhibit. I thought that was quite interesting. And the person started out by saying one word can identify the exhibit on George Washington. What is that word? Honor. Honor, that's not a word we use in the 21st century. Because of honor, Washington stepped down as leader of the Continental Army. He understood the great fear that the United States president would become a king. So because of his honor, he stepped down as the president after serving just two terms, therefore setting in motion a precedent that we followed all the way up into the 20th century. So, yes, I think honor is a quality that I would associate with George Washington. Ron, as I hear you speak and use what some might
1: consider old-fashioned words, It occurs to me that these words are actually describing something timeless about leadership. I can't help but think that our George Washingtons, our Abraham Lincolns, or the quality that you mentioned about Roosevelt earlier, identifies our greatest leaders in America with some of the greatest leaders, for example, in the ancient world. Are are there not timeless principles of leadership that can be taught and that people can understand? And there's a golden thread that connects
0: through time all of these great leaders. I like what you're saying. Our greatest leaders were, first of all, readers. And so they would have read uh, the precedent behind them. It might be Greek, Roman, European, English. Uh, I think that Lincoln won the Civil War with his words. Well, Winston Churchill, in a sense, led his nation through World War II with his words. Both of them were remarkable readers. The surprising thing about Ulysses S. Grant, he was thought not to be a reader. I discovered that he was a reader. And I don't think you could be a great writer without being a great reader. So lawyers would use the term precedent, but I think all of us could use that term because what biography does is give us examples, moral examples from the past. Oh, yes, it's a different time. Lincoln can't help us with climate change. He can't help a modern president with what to do in Afghanistan, but he does have some principles, the way that he deals with people, the way that he is magnanimous, the way that he is willing to admit his own mistakes. These are principles that I think, using your word, are timeless. It's really encouraging. You you mentioned
1: presidents who are surprisingly well-educated as opposed to perhaps being schooled and credentialed formally, but Harry S. Truman was another who you know, my grandfather, who was from Independence, Missouri, used to walk there on Delaware Street, Delaware Avenue. And, and you know, uh, Harry and Bess had that house there on Delaware. And often, true, he would see his friend, Harry Truman, up there reading. And one day, Harry came out of the house and, and Pappy asked him, what have you been reading? And he said, Thucydides. You know? Ooh, wow. You, <laughs> you thought, wow. Yes. Somebody of such a humble background who never went to college really uh, could uh, have such a love for the classics and these timeless principles that you also are
0: talking about, Ron. And it well, seems... Who, to, oh, please, go ahead. Go ahead. I no. was well, just going to say, Truman is a great example of how we reevaluate people. Uh, following FDR, he was thought not up to the task. In the first years after his presidency, he was not rated very highly in the various presidential historian surveys. Now I think he's number five or number six. David McCullough gave us a marvelous biography of Truman, which exhibited what you just described, the depth of the man, that he was a reader, that he was interested in the classics. And so it's fascinating how now Truman is right up there in the top five, six, seven presidents of all time. And boy, what a cauldron
1: he went through to yes. uh, to, to earn that depth, you know, the, the decisions he had to make already uh, out of the starting gate of his presidency. Well, we're talking about these timeless principles that you can trace all the way back to the classics, whether you're reading Thucydides or Plato or Aristotle, uh, any number of people reading about Caesar Augustus, for example. Uh, But it also occurs to me that we're talking about followers in a democracy as well. What are the qualities that characterize good followers?
0: Well, I think this is a a tension in our particular history and culture. We, We, in one way, have always trumpeted our individualism. When Alexis de Tocqueville, the Frenchman, came to the United States in the 1830s, he saw right away that this was a quality that the United States seemed to possess, that France didn't have in the same measure, England didn't have in the same measure. And he thought this was one of the chief values of the United States. But he also said, I worry about this value. He actually said this. He said, I fear that 200 years from now, that's about right now, he said this individualism is going to separate Americans. It's going to drive a divide between them. Because individualism must be balanced by a sense of community. The strong sense of community. It's fascinating to watch how various countries and cultures have responded. Germany has responded so well to the uh, pandemic. And they have initiated something that now people are saying we should be doing too. It's the whole idea of work share. That's, I can't pronounce the words in German. It's the idea that no one should lose their job in a particular factory. So everyone is willing to cut back a little bit on their hours so that everyone will be able to work together. Well, the person who described this thing said, that's a culture that has been built up in Germany through the years, a culture of community. I think we have, David Brooks talks about our hyper-individualism. I think right at this moment in time, we need a greater sense of community. That is a polarity, isn't it? A necessary
1: polarity between our identity as individuals but that we always belong to a community and the well-educated whether they've been schooled formally or not the well-educated learn how to negotiate that polarity so that they can retain their individuality their personhood but at the same time be always conscious of the greater good the needs of the community and we call that don't we the common good
0: we do it you know the mask in a sense has become a sadly a symbol of division but Really, the mask is a symbol to, to me to, of respect. I wear the re- mask because I respect you. I, I respect you, that, that's to me what the mask should be. But we're struggling with that right at this moment.
1: Well, you and I have, have referred to the current moment, the pandemic, the shut uh, the, with the um, stay at home orders in the various states. How have your views about leadership and citizenship changed
0: as a result of the current pandemic, Ron? Well, it's been fascinating, has it not, to look at leaders that we barely knew their names, governors, mayors who have stepped up. I noticed that uh, Michael Devine, the governor of Ohio, is like 86%, Cuomo is 81%, the governor of California is 79%. Many of us didn't even know who these people were. What were the qualities that allowed them to step forward? Well, I think a chief quality was not simply that they had mastered the information, that they had, yes, had a, struck a balance between health and the economy, but that they had demonstrated with their words that they really cared deeply about the people who were suffering. They communicated this. And I think this is a major reason why these leaders have risen in estimation uh, in their own states or in their own localities.
1: Interesting. Well, you wrote a critically acclaimed book about Ulysses S. Grant a couple of years back. Do you think he was a good leader?
0: He was a very good leader. Uh, he, he was a terrific leader as a general. The, the 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 story out there is that he was a good general and not a good president. I had not known anything about his presidency until I started research for the book. I think Grant is on the rise. We have had three. C-SPAN Presidential Historian Surveys in the 21st Century. Grant has risen 11 places, 11 places in those three surveys, because we've now taken a fresh look at Grant's Presidency and discovered that he did some wonderful things. Most noteworthy when his own Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, had passed the three Reconstruction Amendments, 13, 14, 15, all designed to give civil rights, political rights to the freedmen. Then we often have this happen in our lives. The Republican party grew weary and stepped back. He said, well, we'll just let the South deal with it. Grant did not step back. He was late to the cause, really. He he supported Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, but there was no sense immediately that he felt deeply emotionally for these African-Americans. But the further he traveled South as general in the Civil War, he began to, uh, to really understand their plight. So Grant stepped forward, and I, I argue in my book that he was the last American president, really, before we get to John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Baines Johnson and, of course, Martin Luther King Jr., who was willing to stand up and defend the rights of the freedmen. So that alone is a fresh way of looking at his presidency.
1: And we were talking a little bit
0: while we were in the waiting room for this, waiting
1: for this program to start, you know, he was regarded as a hero around the world for saving Republican principle and, and, and as a freedom
0: fighter. What, tell us a little bit about that. He was. Uh, when he retired from the presidency after two terms, he went to England first. He thought he, he loved to travel. He found travel very educational. He went with his wife and his youngest son, and he was shocked when he arrived in Liverpool and thousands of people were there to greet him. And then he spoke to working men throughout England. And they saw him as a leader for the rights of not simply African-Americans, but the rights of laboring people. And so to his great surprise, wherever he went, he was this incredibly well-received hero. Uh, The first president who had ever spent, he spent two and a half years touring the world. And uh, he was very much honored in every country in which he visited.
1: It's remarkable, we're talking about reassessing presidents and how how much people like Harry S. Truman and uh, Ulysses S. Grant climb in the polls. And I think right here of our hometown hero, Gerald R. Ford. Yes. I mean, as more time goes by, I think Ford's time has arrived in this nation because he had a sense of the common good, that was unshakable, and he was willing to put service above self. He was willing to sacrifice his political career for the sake of the nation. How many politicians do we know or act like that today? In fact, in my book, Ford is
0: a statesman and not just a politician. Well, I agree, and you and I are all waiting eagerly for Richard Norton Smith's marvelous biography of Ford, which is going to do what you just say, bring Ford into the spotlight that he dearly deserves.
1: Well, tell us, Ron, about your recently completed manuscript, uh, Abraham Lincoln's diary, uh, what do his most personal reflections tell us about one of our greatest, but perhaps in some ways, most one of our most
0: enigmatic, enigmatic presidents? Enigmatic is true. Uh, Lincoln's law partner, William Herndon, said, Lincoln is the most shut-mouthed man I know, by which he meant Lincoln often doesn't reveal his most inner thoughts and feelings. Well, I knew, but had not really taken seriously that throughout Lincoln's life, he had the habit of writing little notes to himself. Uh, He never dated them, he never titled them, he never signed them. I'm working in coordination with the papers of Abraham Lincoln in Springfield. 119 of these notes have have survived. They were called originally by Lincoln's secretaries who wrote the first biography of Lincoln, fragments. Why are they fragments? Well, they're fragmentary. Often they will end in the middle of a sentence, sometimes even in the middle of the word. It's like if you and I were writing a note and suddenly the telephone rang or we had to greet someone, you put your pen down and the note isn't finished. But these notes are remarkable. For example, uh, in 1855, Lincoln ran for the Senate. The Senate was elected by state legislatures until the 21st century. He led on the first seven ballots, but he did not win. And publicly, Lincoln was very magnanimous, very, this is okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be all right. This was the highest office he had thought he could ever attain. He was never thinking of being president. But a year later, he wrote a note that he thought we would never see. He starts out by saying, Stephen Douglas and I met 22 years ago, so we can date that note. Douglas was his, the great senator from Illinois. He said, we were both ambitious. I was probably more ambitious than he. Douglas has risen to the highest eminence, but as for me, my life is nothing but a failure. Nothing but a flat failure. He never thought we would ever see that note. In less than four years, he's president of the United States. So I'm dividing the book into 10 chapters, looking at 12 of these fragments. They're all remarkable in terms of what they tell us about what I call the private Lincoln behind the public Lincoln. They're not a formal diary, you know, not a formal journal, they're not dated again, but I think it's kind of an intellectual diary of allowing us to see the inner Lincoln that we really never really see from the public Lincoln.
1: To what extent, let me ask you the historiographic question, to what extent do you try to place these in a chronological context versus a thematic or do you do you reconcile
0: those two tensions in the presentation good question i do it chronologically if you think about it if those in the audience think of Trink lincoln's biography why he was really a pretty itinerant person he lived in new salem as a young man uh, he worked in a store and he slept in the back room not exactly a time and place to keep notes <laughs> He then often would stay with families for weeks or months at a time. Uh, Then, uh, even when he and Mary were first married, why they lived in an apartment. Finally, he bought a house, but then he goes off and spends two years in Congress in Washington, DC. So we have some notes from the 1830s and a few more notes from the 1840s, but the notes really begin in the 1850s. So I do treat them chronologically. And one of the things that people did in the 19th century as they were leaving to be, as he was leaving to assume the presidency, Mary had what she called a burn pile. And she went out into the alley behind their home and burned all kinds of papers. I think she burned the correspondence between she and her husband. This was the kind of, people did that in the 19th century. So I think Lincoln didn't save everything. I think he must have written hundreds of notes We have 119, I'm focusing on about 15 or 20 in 10 chapters. They reveal things about Lincoln that we need to know that are not fully revealed in the public Lincoln. Ron, what do you
1: think compelled Lincoln to write these fragments? Why write, was it therapeutic or
0: what? Therapeutic, yes, he is wrestling with ideas. He is considering options. He, before he will speak, for example, in 1854, Lincoln comes back into the political arena. The Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed. It was led through the Senate by the same Stephen Douglas, and it was based on what was called popular sovereignty. It was the idea that you could vote in Kansas, for example. Did you want to have slavery or not? Well, Lincoln thought this was a terrible idea. How could you vote on something as immoral as slavery? But he didn't immediately speak about it. It was three months before his book. What did he do? He wrote these notes. He was writing notes to himself. A lot of the notes were about slavery. He was kind of working this out in his mind. He he read two books uh, in 1858 during the debates with Lincoln, with Douglas. He read a a book on pro-slavery theology. Well, he didn't agree with pro-slavery theology at all, but he wanted to know what these sorts of people were saying. When he came home from his single term in Congress, he shocked his law partner, William Hearn, and said, well, we have to expand our newspaper circulation list. He said, what do you mean? Well, I'm going to start subscribing to a Richmond, Virginia paper and a Charleston, South Carolina paper. And Hearn said, well, why would you do that? He said, we need all voices at the table. I need to know what everyone is thinking. Isn't that the mark of a leader? I need to know what everyone, I don't have to agree with it. But I need to know what they are thinking. Ron,
1: I always learn from you. I mean, with our Common Ground Initiative at the Hauenstein Center, I mean that that could almost become our mascot right there. <laughs> the way he subscribes to these papers to <laughs> That's no, that's that's excellent. Let me ask you. You know, a lot of people have been attacking Lincoln in the last generation for being racist. Now, you and I are historians. We understand the fallacy of presentism you can't impose today's values or discussions you know in a cookie cutter fashion on people of the past you have to look at the available historical options to people at the time i always use the example of thomas jefferson there in colonial williamsburg one of his first bills that he introduces is to free the slaves in, in the colony of virginia in the house of burgesses and he's laughed out of court i mean he, he there's no chance that that is going to happen. And, and it's a lesson that his instincts were good, but he, he couldn't achieve what he wanted at that time. And so then he's attacked later for having slaves, but clearly there's that tension. There's that struggle within him that too easily we overlook. A lot of people attack Lincoln. They say, oh, he was really by the standards today. He's really, really viscerally racist. He, you know, He wants to send blacks back to Africa and that kind of thing. How do you handle that question when it comes up? How
0: do you handle it in your work? Well, it's a question that comes up often. I've been very much helped recently by the great uh, historian of the Revolutionary War, Gordon Wood, Professor Emeritus at Brown University. When you say by the standards of today, he says the historical condescension of today. The condescension to look back at people of the 18th or 19th century from our superior vantage point and judge them because they didn't think as we think. So one of the reasons that I'm doing the fragments is it allows us to help answer that question. Did Lincoln have any real feeling for the slaves or was the Emancipation Proclamation, as has been suggested, simply a political or military strategy, a maneuver? Did he care about these people? So the fragments show how he does care. I mean, he, he, he gets furious with this book on pro-slavery theology written by a Presbyterian minister from Alabama. He, he, he's just furious with what he, he talks about. In exclamation points, the very idea that you would treat these people, if you're a Christian, you ought to at least say to the needy, let's give them what they deserve. So I think that we have to take a fresh look at this. Uh, to me, the classic story is uh, in April of 1864, the governor of Kentucky, a s- former United States Senator and the leading newspaper editor came to visit Lincoln in Washington. Uh, the governor was very upset that, mem- that uh, African Americans in, in his state were leaving the agricultural fields to join the Union Army. And Lincoln speaks to these people, without any prepared text and says, I am naturally anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember when I did not so think and feel, feel. Lincoln from a young boy growing up in the territory of what was called the second great awakening, his parents attended Baptist churches in Kentucky and Southern Indiana, Was very much against feeling and emotion. He thought these churches were much too emotional. Later in life, he would participate in two Presbyterian churches, which he thought were much more thoughtful and rational. He wanted to be a rational person. But he says to these people from Kentucky, I did not so think and feel. I think he felt very deeply for the pain of African Americans in America. Well, that's a very important historical corrective to the current
1: party line, which is that he really was quite racist, and I I appreciate your work on that, your thoughtfulness on that. You mentioned Lincoln's religion. Now, people's religion changes over a lifetime, but when you think of of President Lincoln's or, or Abraham Lincoln's most considered thoughtful period of thinking about God, ultimate things, end things, what was he, how would you
0: categorize him? Well, I like what you suggested at the outset. We're all on a journey. And Lincoln's on a journey. The thing that I think has been most troubling to me and those who have written about Lincoln was that what happened was he grows up in Kentucky and southern Indiana and then he does what a lot of young adults do then and now. He rejects the faith of his parents. When he gets to New Salem several witnesses say he actually wrote a paper criticizing the Bible and what he called revealed religion and one of his friends who wanted Lincoln to become a young politician ripped it out of his hand and threw it in the fire. But then for all of us, life tumbles in sooner or later. In 1850, the first Lincoln child dies, Eddie at three and a half. Lincoln looks around for the Episcopal minister who is married, he and Mary, but the minister's out of town, so he learns there's a new young Presbyterian minister who's been in Springfield less than a year, James Smith, and he invites James Smith to do the funeral service for Willie, uh, for Eddie. Then fast forward to the world to the Civil War. The second Lincoln child, Willie, dies in 1862. By now Lincoln is beginning to attend the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. The pastor is Phineas Densmore Gurley. I think the missing person in the Lincoln story. Gurley finished number 1 in his class at Princeton Seminary. Very thoughtful preaching. We have four or five sermons that of Gurley. Gurley preached at Willie's funeral service in the White House. And he says to Abraham, Mary was so b- overcome with grief she wasn't present. He said to Lincoln, I ask you to trust in biblical providence. Well, the young Lincoln had become a fatalist, what I would call a kissing cousin of deism. If there's a God, it's a kind of a watchmaker God, but not a God who enters into history. But when we get to the second inaugural, my goodness, in 701 words, Lincoln mentions God 14 times quotes the Bible four times and invokes prayer three times. Where does this come from? One of the fragments that's in my book that no one knew about in 1865. In 1862, after the second battle of Manassas, Lincoln sat down and wrote a little fragment to himself. He begins, the will of God prevails. In each contest, both sides claim to know the will of God. One must be, both cannot be right. And then he offers this profound sentence. It may be that God's purpose is different from the purpose of either party. And yet God uses human effort to affect his purpose. So I'm suggesting Lincoln is on a journey. And part of the fragment of the Medi- what was later actually titled by his secretary, The Meditation on the Divine Will, Lincoln didn't give it a title. This is part of our understanding of the riddle of Lincoln's faith odyssey.
1: That's fascinating.
0: So, of the
1: 119 fragments that are out there that you've been privileged to assemble and look at and, uh, you know, sort out for what you wanted to write, what surprised you most, if
0: you may share that with us, about Lincoln's private reflections? Well, the one on on the failure, that's very surprising. The one I've just mentioned, the idea that that he was already in the middle of the Civil War grappling with the question, where is God, where is the agency of God in the midst of this Civil War? He offered a remarkable notes for a lecture to lawyers, in which he begins uh, the first sentence, I am not an accomplished lawyer. By then, he was already well known throughout the state of Illinois, And he goes on to say, I have learned as much from my mistakes as when I have been moderately successful. Wow, wouldn't we like to talk about that, Cleves, in terms of leadership? Not simply law, but professor, president, uh, CEO, business, whatever it might be. This is amazing, these notes for a law lecture. Uh, Another remarkable story is a definition of democracy that uh, Mary Todd Lincoln was put into an insane asylum in 1875. She was invicted in a trial in Chicago. And when she gets out, thanking her saviors, her, her rescuers, she gives them a fragment that her husband wrote. It's a fragment about democracy. So on and on and on, there, there's so many surprising things that, that are not discontinuous with the public Lincoln, but reveal things we did not fully know before. You've mentioned Mary Todd Lincoln several times. They had, I understand, a
1: quite a tumultuous relationship. To what extent was that marriage a source of strength or a psychological liability or some combination thereof and a kind of a polarity?
0: Well, it's very hard, isn't it, to get inside someone else's marriage. Mary has suffered a very bad press and from very bad press from many historians. I'm a little more tolerant of her if you think of the fact that she was really her, one of her husband's advisors in Springfield. She comes to Washington and she's treated by the other women of Washington as kind of a Western rube. And her place as an advisor is kind of pushed aside, not intentionally by Seward and members of the cabinet. She's lost one son, her husband is assassinated, she then, she's lost Willie, the second son, before his death. Then the third son, Tad, will die at age 18, shortly after her husband's death. She was a strong-willed person. Uh, uh, John Hay, his young secretary, called her a hellcat. So, but on the other hand, she, she saw Lincoln's abilities in many ways before he did. And she she wanted to push him and support him. So it's a very mixed story. I don't think we'll ever get to the full end of it.
1: Well, you've picked such a fascinating person to write about. And before we leave the topic of Lincoln, Ron, I have to go back a few years to Lansing, Michigan, when you came in and you gave a talk. This would have been during the bicentennial of Lincoln's birth. So it would have been around 2009, 2010. And you gave a talk on Abraham Lincoln. It's the only talk I've been present about Abraham Lincoln that received a standing ovation. You so moved the audience. And you discovered something about his rhetoric, Lincoln's preference for certain kinds of words, and it made a huge difference in his speeches. Could you tell us a little bit about your discovery, how you pulled all
0: that together? Yes. Well, in the uh, second inaugural address, which is only 701 words, 505 are one syllable. Lincoln what he loved what he called the Saxon words. He never called it the King James Bible. He, he loved the Bible. He knew much of the Bible from memory. He called it the Saxon Bible. Well, I had to discover what is what are Saxon words. They are strong one-syllable words. Latinate words are several syllables. You want both. Shakespeare was a master of Saxon words, but he also had some Latinate words. I mean, the word proposition in the Gettysburg Address is a Latinate word. So then I discovered after I wrote my first book on Lincoln, how did Lincoln write? Well, he often would sound words out loud before he put them on the paper. He had a sense, I would say, almost for the musicality of words. Four score and seven years ago. He had a sense of the way words sounded. This was important for him. He spoke much more slowly than you and I do. You and I speak about 150 words a minute, the average person. I discovered that having read in various newspapers, they would say, well, it took two and a half minutes, four minutes, six minutes. He spoke only about 110 words a minute. Now, there was no amplification when he was speaking outside. If you've ever worked with really young people when you want them to speak in class or speak in church, when they're nervous, they will speak too quickly. (laughs) Lincoln had a habit of speaking very slowly, which allowed people to understand what he was saying. So yes, his gravitating to Saxon language was a big part of his power as a writer and a speaker. Again, just fascinating. Apparently, he had a high voice. It wasn't a real deep, yes, sonorous voice. A tall man. He was six feet, four inches tall. People were much smaller in the 19th century. If he were to walk into a room today, he'd probably be about six feet, nine inches tall to get a sense of the, how unusually tall he was then and now. But he had a kind of a high tenor voice. Again, various newspaper correspondents have described his voice. Unusual.
1: Thank goodness we have those
0: descriptions. We do,
1: yeah. <laughs> you're currently working on a book about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. I think you yeah. told me that uh, you're somewhere around Chapter 8 uh, on
0: uh, Chamberlain. Who was he? Well, it's very interesting when you speak, you always ask the question, and what is your next book? And I was speaking at the Jonathan Club in downtown Los Angeles for a Meet the Author night, and the question was, and what is your next book? And I said, well, I'm not really, this is right after the grant book. I said, well, I'm not really sure, do you know? And this gentleman in the back on the left said, I know what your next book is. I said, well, please tell me. This <laughs> is Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Well, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was the Bowdoin College professor who volunteered at age 33 to join the Union Army. In many ways, his wife didn't want to do him to do this. He had two young children. His college didn't want him to do this. But he literally said, he said, this war cannot be fought simply by boys. People of my age and stature have to be a part of this war. So at Gettysburg on the second day, he was the colonel leading the 20th Maine. And they were defending the far left line of the Union Army on top of Little Round Top. And uh, suddenly they were besieged by the 15th Alabama, rushing up Little Round Top. And at that moment, the 20th Maine had run out of almost all their ammunition. So Chamberlain calls out, lift your bayonets, and they swept down Little Round Top and defeated, both captured and and forced them to run, the Alabamians and also a regiment from Texas. And he became a very celebrated hero in the 19th century but then his fame disappeared until the novel Killer Angels was written. And then Ken Burns' Civil War documentary. And then the movie Gettysburg. All of these brought Chamberlain back to life so that now Little Round Top is the most visited place in Gettysburg. However, there's always a pushback in our culture and society, so I'm told, I gotta verify this, that there are actually some park rangers at Gettysburg who underneath their formal uniform are wearing t-shirts wearing, saying, Joshua who? Because there are some people who think that maybe he's getting more credit than he deserves. I think our Civil War historian, Jim McPherson, thinks it's deserved, I do too. But I have to deal with this, that uh, did he do what he said he did? Did he maybe exaggerate in the years after when the so-called Second Civil War began, when people began writing about what took place. He's a fascinating figure in any way. And wasn't he a professor? I mean, what did he teach? Yes, he was, he was a professor of rhetoric and then a professor of modern languages. He knew nine languages, nine languages. So a remarkable person. He, after the Civil War he became governor of Maine four times, President of Bowdoin College for 12 years. He was wounded in in 1864, the year after Gettysburg, he was wounded so severely at Gettysburg, shot through both hips that the two surgeons who attended him said, you will die. And he wrote a letter to his wife telling her not to grieve for him that he would die, but that she would be able to go on with their children. He had six surgeries. He lived, believe it or not, to age 86, dying in 1914, but much of his life was lived in pain. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's,
1: that's interesting. I mean, here, here's such an interesting person who knows how to express himself because of his academic training yes. and his deep, deep emotions. And so you must have a real rich vein of of archival material to
0: mine. I do, and I'm always looking for someone who does, as again, as you suggest, is able to express himself, herself in letters or in speeches. He became a much sought-after speaker. The other side, I'm always looking, is there a faith story here? So uh, Chamberlain's mother wanted him to be a minister. His father wanted him to be a military man. He went to seminary for three years. He did not become a minister. And so that seminary three years has been passed over in two sentences in many of the biographies. I think it has everything to do with the values that formed and shaped his life, that made him the kind of magnanimous, gracious person that we then would come to know in his adulthood. And Ron, you went to seminary. I went to seminary. So I'm aware of the fact that many people go to seminary then and now who do not become quote-unquote ministers but for whom that seminary, that theological education, that formation is very important for their adult lives.
1: Well, we've got some viewers queued up to ask questions. Uh, This is your fan base here in West Michigan, Ron. You're a popular dude here. (laughs) So let's go to some of our questions. We've got uh, Noreen Myers, who's a a real friend, great friend of the Hauenstein Center. Hi, Noreen, thanks for watching. Her first. Comment here. It's not a question, but a simple. She's putting her now a simple expression of gratitude to you, Ron, for suggesting that we read out loud Lincoln's speeches. Mm. I do so often, she says, and then she follows this with a question. After this pandemic, is there any hope that you can provide that we will have an opportunity to engage in some very basic thinking about the nature's nature of our responsibilities and obligations to one another? Thanks, Noreen, for your question. Thank you for the
0: question. Well, I, 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 I one you asked me earlier, on, what have I learned? Well, reading out loud is what I've learned, and I'm great, grateful that for you, the reading out loud has been helpful. Lincoln said he read out loud because it gave him a sen- two senses, not simply the sense of the eye, which you do when you read silently, but the ear when you read out loud. I think the pandemic has been, if we've taken advantage of it, for many of us to slow down a bit, to spend more time with those we love, to do more reading and reflecting. And I think the challenge will be, will we be able to retain some of those values, some of those habits, as we inevitably will get caught back up into the fast pace of life? It's remarkable living in Southern California, the kind of freeway place, the roads, which usually are just jammed with cars have not been jammed. And what what that has done to allow people to kind of maybe slow their lives down, I think it's been not all the terrible nature of the pandemic, but I do think there are some unintended values might emerge from it.
1: Very good. We also have a question from one of your big fans here, who's a professional historian at Aquinas College, Jason Duncan. You may remember yeah. Jason. He's, he's come to every one of your events that we've hosted. Uh, he says, hi, Ron, glad to see you again. Really enjoyed your biography, A Lincoln, and I'm looking forward to the fragments book. In terms of Lincoln's political and partisan life, what in his experience and life drew Lincoln to the Whigs and not the jacksonian democrats and just a little background jason's working on a book on martin van buren so i think oh,
0: that's where some good. of this is coming good from. thank you jason great question well jason i visited for the first time martin van buren's home about a year ago it's a remarkable home as you well know yes from the very earliest uh, lincoln became a Whig. what who were the Whigs? In some ways, they were successors of the Jeffersonian Republican Democrats or Democrat Republicans. They believed in what was Henry Clay called the American system. They believed in what was called internal improvements that we had to develop the rivers, the roadways, the canals to, to make this nation go forward. They were protectionists in their time. They, they wanted to protect American industry, and so that's one of their values. Many of them, not all of them, were anti-slavery. The Whigs originally were a a national party, so there would have been some differences of northern and southern Whigs, but many of them were anti-slavery. So Lincoln actually had a hard time giving up being a Whig to join the Republican Party. He didn't join immediately because he had a great, especially his great uh, uh, great respect for Henry Clay, who's in many ways Mr. Whig, this is this is why he had become a Whig, and he wanted to be sure that this these values would be transmitted into the new Republican Party. Thank you, Jason.
1: Our next question is from a viewer who asks if President Lincoln were alive today, what do you think he would say to us as a nation today?
0: If President Lincoln were alive today, I would be very appalled by the partisanship and the divisiveness that we day, when he took a 15 day trip to Warren, even in his stop in Indianapolis. He said to the crowd, he said, I, I understand that you're not really applauding me, you're applauding the office of the presidency. And if Stephen Douglas were here tonight applauding him, And if John Bell Hood were here tonight, you would be applauding him. And if any of the supporters of the other three candidates would like to join our train as we travel east, you would be most welcome. Well, this almost seems surreal, doesn't it, when we think of modern politics. We know the story of the the rivals but that Doris Kearns Goodwin has told, but Lincoln also had deep respect for Democrats who were his opponents. He never for a moment thought they were not patriotic that he just had a difference of opinion on on the ideals or the policies that each side would represent.
1: Ron, so much in our brief time together, and I'm just sort of amazed at the topics we've been able to go through. Is there anything else you would like to mention that we haven't covered, but that's important to you to get across to American audiences?
0: Well, we've just come through Memorial Day and are looking forward to the 4th of July. One of the stories to me that uh, uh, celebrates who is Ulysses S. Grant occurred on the 4th of July in 1878. Grant is now on a world tour. He's in Hamburg, Germany. And the ambassador, they would have called minister in Germany, said, I'd like to lift a glass to Ulysses S. Grant. He is the man who won the Civil War. Now, Grant was not a good speaker. But at that moment, he interrupted the minister and he said, if I might, I did not win the civil war. And then these really important words, if this nation could be saved by one person, it is a nation not worth saving. Wow. He said, if you do wish to lift a glass, I suggest that you do so to the young men who came from their farms and their villages. They are the ones who won the Civil War every bit as much as those of us who gave orders for their valor. Wow, do we need that spirit today. If this nation could be saved by one person, it is a nation not worth saving. And immediately Grant takes away the praise of himself and wants to transfer it to others. We very much need that spirit in our political leaders today.
1: It goes back to the theme of humility that you mentioned
0: at the very beginning of of our hour together. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah.
1: Thank you, Ron White, for being my guest on today's Lunch and Learn. Viewers can see why we've always enjoyed hosting you here in Grand Rapids. I'd invite those who've tuned in to fill out the brief survey and let us know what you thought of today's program. I also invite you to zoom in or join us on Facebook at the same time, Thursday, May 28th when my guest will be Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy Lead Fellow, Freshta Torijan. Freshta is a bilingual student from Afghanistan. She's studying international relations and she will share how her her personal journey through terrorism and poverty and injustice has strengthened her resolve to be a voice for those who are not able to share their stories or benefit from the opportunities she has had. Freshta's life is the stuff movies are made of So, till Thursday, stay tuned and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hallenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Hallenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.